In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. To the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have a really exciting episode for you. We'll start off by giving uh, a more thorough and detailed update on COVID, um, which, believe it or not, if you're in the U.S., believe it or not, is uh, still really a freaking thing. Um, <laughs> and then we'll move on to a discussion of the uh, recent indictment of the Trump organization coming out of New York. And then we'll wrap it up with a, uh, a little bit more of a political philosophical discussion about the role of uh, politics in sports, or perhaps more specifically, the role of sports in politics. Um, so yeah, and as always, if you like the show and you want to support us, you can head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash theperspectrum and uh, you know throw us a buck and get exclusive ac- access to patron content. And uh, yeah, you help support the show. Yeah. So this next thing that I'm about to say is something that you should definitely take out of context and you should take this audio clip and loop it somewhere later because you're probably never going to hear me say it again. I am really looking mm-hmm. forward to talking about sports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to I'm just going to play that in the background as I fall asleep at night. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, if you listen to the show like Nathan nor Nathan nor I are huge sports followers. Um but we are really into freedom of speech and activism. And yeah. that is the angle that we're kind of taking on on the sports discussion today. Exactly. Um, speaking of uh, taking things at a free angle, uh, let's talk wow. about the COVID numbers. Great. Really nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so at this point, uh, worldwide, 186 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 183 million uh, seven days ago. So it's a 2.8% increase in uh, in total cases. So 2.8 million new cases this week, or about 400,000 new cases per day, which is actually slightly improved relative to the prior week. Um, so far, 48 Zero two million people have died from COVID in the world, which is up from 3.97 million last week. Um, so that's about 50,000 new deaths or about 7,000 deaths per day, which is also improved relative to the prior week. Um, so far, 43 doses of the vaccine have been administered for every 100 people, which is up from 40 doses per 100 uh, from the week before. So that's about the same increase that we've seen for the past couple of months. Um, In the U.S., at this point, 34.67 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 34.56 million last week. So that's about 110,000 new cases this week, which is about 10,000 more new cases than there were the prior week. Um, So actually... Uh, a bit of an increase as we've seen another week of a slight increase in our daily new case uh, rate. Um, so far, 622,000 people have died from COVID, which is up from 621,000 last week, 
which is about 1,000 new deaths or about 142 deaths per day, which is actually a pretty significant improvement mm-hmm. from the last few weeks, um, but still, you know, still like a lot of people dying um, and a lot of people dying unnecessarily. Um, yeah. At this point, the U.S. is ranked 29 in the world for when uh, when ranked by, you know, one-dose vaccinations uh, with just 55% of the population uh, with at least one dose, which is up 1% from last week. And 48% of the population now has two doses, which is up 2% from last week. Yeah. And right now, I'm I'm looking at the, the map of, like, vaccinated rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is on the Mayo Clinic. And the sad thing is, it looks like the Electoral College. <laughs> like, it looks almost exactly like the Electoral College. Uh, the, Interesting. The the states that are in the high fifties, sixties, and uh, I believe Massachusetts is in the seventies. Yeah, Massachusetts wow. is in the seventies. Uh, so you know, good on you, Massachusetts. And uh, Vermont is also in the seventies. Um, basically, the blue states, the solidly blue states, have the most vac- vaccinations, and the the red states have the least. And the purple states have somewhere in the middle. And it is so disappointing how politicized this vaccine got. And I think that part of it you can explain with the fact that the Trump era kind of made a lot of people who are Republicans more susceptible to conspiratorial thinking. But I think the biggest part is not just the conspiratorial thinking on the part of the individual. It's the fact that Trump relentlessly pushed the idea that COVID was no big deal. Mm-hmm. And regardless of whether or not you think that there's, you know, bits of dead baby in the vaccine, if yeah. you don't think that it's a big deal, you're not going to get the shot. I mean, yeah, exactly. Most people don't get the flu shot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You might not be active, like, you know, avidly against the vaccine, yeah. but you might just not be convinced that it's really worth your time. Yeah. And that is a really scary thing to think about. And unfortunately, you often do have that sort of cognitive bias where when a bunch of people that you don't like keep keep telling you something to do something over and over and over again, it makes you not want to do it. So you keep having all of these liberal elites, these celebrities and Joe Biden flooding your airway saying, hey, you know what's cool? Vaccines. Yeah. And it's just, (laughs) you know, it's people who are seeing that and being like, Hey, stop shoving this shit down my throat. Yeah. And, and it's a tough spot to be in. Cause what are you not going to tell people? To exactly. To get the vaccine? <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I think that this goes back to a tip for good that we had a few weeks ago, which is the fact that the people that are most likely to convince people that might be hesitant to get the vaccine, to get the vaccine are not necessarily celebrities or experts or even necessarily mm-hmm. political figures that they respect. It's the people around them. It's their family members. It's their family members that are saying, hey, I understand your concerns, or even I understand that you don't think this is a big deal, but I am scared for you. I am worried about you. I don't want anything to happen to you. And if something Mm -hmm. were to happen to you, I would be devastated. So please, please get this vaccine. I will help you. I will drive you to the appointment. I will help you set it up. I will drive you back. You know, I'll, uh, I'll... I'll stay with you 
while you're recovering from the vaccine. <laughs> you know, I'll make you some tea or whatever. Like, unfortunately, that is really the direction that people have to go in terms of trying to get more and more people vaccinated. It, Like, I almost never argue for an individualist solution to a societal problem. But this mm-hmm. is one of those cases in which I think that that is really the best option and it's yeah. and research demonstrates that it's the most effective option yeah absolutely and the, our first segment today is all kind of focused on like you know updates on covid and i think i think it'll arm you with some some facts that will hopefully enable you to say even more convincingly that you're worried for the people around you who are not vaccinated um one interesting stat which um, Dr. Fauci recently relayed was that um, of the 10,000 deaths from COVID in June, 99% of them uh, were people who were unvaccinated. Like, Tucker Carlson is literally killing people. Yeah, every <laughs> like, single one of those deaths is an avoidable, unnecessary death. Yeah. They can literally be avoided with a little bit of time and for free yeah. to the individual. So it's like it's an it's crazy to me that we've literally just allowed 10,000 people or nearly 10,000 people to die. Or I guess 10,000 people have allowed themselves to die. And also, sometimes I do see a tendency from some people on the online left. And I like, I definitely don't want to generalize or anything, but there is sometimes a tendency for people to see shit like that and just be like, okay, well, fuck them. You know, they, these are people that uh, were stupid enough to get vaccinated. They made their choice, you know, and, and this is, this is the result. Please resist that. Yeah. All right. Look, yes. At this point, with all we know, it is stupid not to get the vaccine. That's fine. You know, that's fine to think that, you know, in in some contexts, it's fine to say that. But life is precious. Mm -hmm. And dying should not be the the punishment for being stupid. Yeah. Like, that is... The the crime... The the punishment does not fit the crime. (laughs) And regardless of how frustrating it is... Like, that cannot be the attitude because, number one, I mean, just morally, it's reprehensible. Number two, it turns people off. Like, Mm. people see people say stuff like that. People see people on the online left say things like that, and they are disgusted by it, rightfully. They're turned off by it. Rightfully so, yeah. And, you know, and as illogical as it might be, it might make them even less likely to want to get the vaccine because they don't want to be associated with those assholes. So that, that, that's one of the first points that I want to make about that, which is resist that urge, fight against that urge, because it's, it's morally reprehensible and it's unproductive. Yeah, truly. At a time when we really need productive arguments to convince people to get the vaccine. Yeah. So for our first segment, we're talking about um, updates about covid specifically focusing on the new, uh, well, relatively new Delta variant. Yeah. 
So at this point, uh, actually just today, uh, got a news alert that's basically saying that uh, Pfizer is currently seeking approval from the FDA in order to uh, start providing a third booster shot. Mm -hmm. So it's very possible that among those of us that are fully vaccinated, uh, we might be needing to go in to get another booster shot uh, for the for the Delta variant. And yeah. I believe that at the same time, they're also making it so the second dose of the vaccine or people that are already that, that are in the circulation and that are just now getting vaccinated will be more protected from the Delta variant because the newer shots are, are accounting for that as well. Hmm. So that is definitely so, a concern. Yeah. So, so let's start kind of at a little bit at the beginning. So the Delta variant was discovered last fall in India and at the time began kind of spreading around the world. At this point, at least 85 countries have the variant circulating um, and in a number of countries, uh, they've they've started to, you know, re-implement new restrictions and lockdowns. Um, Britain is delaying its reopening. A number of countries are putting in place new lockdowns um, in order to slow down the spread of this variant. Um, so, so around mid-June, the Delta variant accounted for 99% of COVID cases in the UK and is set to account for 90% of COVID cases in Europe by the end of August. And, um, and currently, according to the Center for Disease Control, it now accounts for just over half of the COVID cases in the United States. Yeah, which is up from just 26% of the COVID cases in the United States a month ago. So literally in a month, the prevalence of this, you know, as a percent of total cases has doubled. Which, which indicates that it's a better transmitter than the other variants because it's out-competing them for, for spread. Yeah. Um, and, and it looks to be, according to the ECDC, it, 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 they estimate that it's about 40 to 60% more transmissible um, than previous variants of this, of COVID, which is pretty worrying. Right. Because like we're looking at a variant that is now like the dominance, you know, dominant form in most of the world looks to be more transmissible, which means that, you know, that vulnerable population is just more vulnerable. Yeah. And the rise of this variant also demonstrates why the libertarian argument. Yes. When it comes to vaccinations, at least for this specific disease falls apart. So the issue with the libertarian art, so well, let's start with what the libertarian argument is. You know, simply put, it's everyone should make their own decision as to whether or not they get a vaccine because the only person that is affected by the decision to get a vaccine is you. So. Eh, wrong. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, well, the thing is, and this is one of the things that uh, my my father, the A and P professor, said when he when he came on here. Um, the more time a disease is allowed to spread, is allowed to be infecting a population, the more likely you are to have variants. Now, yeah, the current vaccine is still fairly effective against this variant, mm -hmm. but it can you know the 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 more. The, the, the further it goes 
from being like the original strand of the virus, the less effective that the vaccination is actually going to be, which is why they have had to kind of um, they've had to kind of change the vaccine itself that new people are getting as you know, as we've been going along and they've had to create a booster for those of us who've already been fully vaccinated. And yeah. the issue. So, so what that means is that by not getting vaccinated initially and create and, and contributing to the rise of variants, you are making it so that people that are getting vaccinated are less protected and therefore yeah. more at risk. So you are affecting people around you. You are yeah. actively hurting people around you by not getting vaccinated. And even, and I know I've said this point before, but even if we put that, put that point aside, there are some people that due to some type of medical condition might not be able to get the virus or the, the, the vaccine at all. Mm-hmm. And those people deserve to be protected. And what they rely on is herd immunity. And in yeah. order for herd immunity to happen, which we are not at that point yet, we are not at the point in which herd immunity is, you know, is, is effective. In order for that to happen, everybody who can get the vaccine must get the vaccine. Yeah. So it's not a question of freedom. It's a question of humanity. Mm-hmm. It's a question of whether or not you are going to hurt those around you. So even the libertarian interpretation of when government involvement is appropriate, which is if your actions directly place another in physical harm's harm's way, well, that still applies. Yeah. So stop pretending it's an issue of freedom. It's not. And I would also like to point out one other thing. All of these commentators that are telling you to be skeptical about the vaccine, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, they're refusing to disclose whether or not they've been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. You know, and they've been making up this bullshit excuse of, oh, it's because of HIPAA. HIPAA applies to doctors. All right. Yeah. Not you. So it doesn't prevent you from disclosing your own <laughs> medical records. Like, so you know that they're vaccinated. Like anybody that doesn't think they're vaccinated, I got a bridge to sell you on Mars. Like <laughs> they're definitely vaccinated. But of course, they're not going to publicly say that because they've been they've been spreading around skepticism and they want to keep their audience. Yeah, I want to double down on a couple points there that you made. First of all, if you choose not to get the vaccine, you are choosing to put the people around you in harm's way. It's just that simple. Um, You're choosing to potentially contribute to the rise of other variants. And importantly, This is the second thing I wanted to to double down on. If you had COVID and once you recovered, you thought, hey, I'm, you know, now I'm immune, so I don't have to worry about it. So I don't need to get a vaccine. Screw screw you guys. I already had COVID. I'm lucky. Well, because variants change, because variants are different formulations of the same disease, Immunity from one variant doesn't necessarily translate to immunity from another variant. So if you had like the original COVID variant, there is like there is evidence to suggest that you are not protected in any significant way from the Delta variant, which means you could literally get COVID a second time. And the thing is, 
the vaccine operates one on a different mechanism than than like your normal immunity to a disease and two provides a, a much stronger much more abundant immune response which means it's a much much better protector than just having had covid before so even if you have had covid before you should get vaccinated because you know you could get it again you contribute to its spread and all of those all those things so and and you know you're putting yourself and and others around you um, at risk the other thing I wanted to, to mention about um, the effectiveness of, of the vaccines is that you know they they do appear to be effective against the Delta variant I assume they'll be more effective once you know, we have these boosters in wide circulation. But we should be aware that according to um, the health ministry of Israel, um, who has, you know, Israel has a very high vaccination rate. They're one of the earliest countries to like vaccinate a significant portion of their population. Um, they've found that as of June 6th, the vaccine has provided 64% protection against the Delta variant. Whereas when uh, in May, when the Alpha variant was the dominant strain in Israel, um, the shot was 95% effective against uh, infection or transmission. So, so basically, what we're saying is those original vaccines have become much less effective at preventing transmission. Now, the government also came out and said that uh, it's still 93% effective at present, preventing severe Disease, uh, forms of the disease and hospitalization, including the Delta variant, compared to 97% uh, back in May. So basically, it's still really good at protecting you from severe cases, but it's not as good right now until they, you know, we get these boosters out and whatnot, um, at protecting people from transmission of the disease, which means that precautions are really important. And it means that the bar for herd immunity goes up. Right, the the few, the less the less effective a vaccine is at preventing transmission, the the more people need to be vaccinated in order for us to reach a scenario where, uh, when an infected person, you know, comes into contact with other people, uh, that transmission is low enough because the people around them are vaccinated. So, all this to say that it's still super important to get the vaccine now more than ever and um and it's still going to protect you uh and really importantly it's going to protect the people around you that are most vulnerable as nathan said the people that can't get the vaccine which not only includes people with some kind of health condition but also kids hmm. and you know kids have been you know uh thankfully not as hard hit as some other groups in the in the population but two points on that one that's not necessarily true that's incidentally true. So it's not necessarily the case that as variants develop, children will continue to be uh, safer than other groups from those variants. And the second point is that they can still get it and transmit it. And so even if they're not like as, as hard hit, protecting them is still really, really important. And so like for the, you know, <laughs> do it for the kids. <laughs> <laughs> But the children. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also want us to talk a little bit about the political angle to mm -hmm. this. Um, so there has been a push by 
Republican governors to try to fight against the idea of vaccine mandates in localities and ironically also businesses. And it's all being, (laughs) it's all being, uh, being presented as if it's about preventing government overreach or preventing or, or protecting your freedom. So there's one important example of blatant hypocrisy that I want to, I want to read for you all. So this, this was in May. So in May, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida uh, signed legislation, which in a press release by his staff, uh, it specifically said that the legislation was aimed at stemming, quote, the tide of local and state government overreach. All right. Now, keep in mind, this was signed at the state level. So this is this is a state law. Um, so basically what this did was it made it so that businesses and localities could not make vaccine mandates in certain public areas. And I just want to read uh, the, a quotation that Governor DeSantis specifically said in defense of this bill. He said, quote, In Florida, your personal choice regarding vaccinations will be protected and no business or government entity will be able to deny you services based on your decision. No business or government entity. So notice the key word in there is business. Mm-hmm. All right. So he's saying that this is to prevent government overreach. But wait, I thought that Republicans were supposed to be the ones that argued that regulating businesses, telling businesses what they could do, that that was government overreach. So apparently, if a business decides, hey, I don't want people in here that aren't vaccinated because I don't want myself, my staff, or my other customers to be infected, that they can't do that. Interesting how they completely flip the the neoliberal approach on its head when it comes to defending bullshit cultural issues that they've been championing for the last for the last like year and a half since the pandemic started in order to basically scare their constituencies into voting for them and that's the thing to bring it back to the point you made in the at the end of a kind of our our recap of COVID at the beginning republican rhetoric has consequences We've been seeing this since the beginning of the pandemic and obviously before, but like the starkest, we've seen some of the starkest examples ever since the start of the pandemic. Early on, we predicted that um, if people listen, if Republicans listen to Donald Trump, they will be infected and die at higher rates. And we saw studies come out that showed that People that listen to people like Sean Hannity who are pushing, you know, that COVID is no big deal, were more likely to be infected and die than other people. And we're seeing that again with with vaccination rates where states are that uh, are lean more heavily Republican or have lower vaccination rates. And we're seeing that with the Delta variant as well. So a lot of these states with lower vaccination rates um, see a much higher prevalence of the Delta variant. In Missouri, for example, data from Johns Hopkins shows that the infection rate is about 3.5 times the national average. And this and CDC data shows that um, Delta variant accounts for 57.5% of cases um, in that region. 
And in that state, only 40% of the population is vaccinated compared to 47% at the time of the study of the U.S. overall. So that's just like one case of where, you know, higher, you know, susceptibility to Republican talking points, lower interest in controlling, you know, your behavior to to promote public health, um, lower vaccination rates, higher transmission, and higher death. And the idea that, like, you know, Republican leaders are still pushing these talking points and are still getting away with it and aren't being called these, aren't being, like, held to account as being really, like, vile, like, uh, you know, fear mongers that are contributing to the death toll among uh, Republican Americans. It's crazy that they're not being held accountable for this. Yeah. I mean, they did nothing to stop the problem and they're actively obstructing the solution. So now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So, Michael, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Nathan, I'm so glad you asked. Um, and so we do Tips for Good every week because, oh, baby, baby, how was I supposed to know that something wasn't right there? Oh, baby, baby, I should have, ha- I should have let you go, and now you're out of sight. Yeah. Show me how you want it to be. Tell me, baby, because I need to know now. I'll so tell you that's baby. why I'll yeah, tell you baby a, you, you know what I'll tell you baby what what I'll tell you baby we're gonna make the world a better place no oh that's <laughs> why oh man see I, I kind of got on a tangent there with the baby thing and <laughs> okay. I mean it, it made sense but to yeah me. okay like, so I, really I it's see, to make the world a better I could place. see the logic there because like it was it was it mm-hmm. was going from that to making the world a better place sure. and, I, and I saw that exactly. before you even did yeah yeah I, that yeah. thank you that's I really a, appreciate that, you that's 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 how uh on one wavelength we are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now that we know exactly why we do it, baby, baby, uh, <laughs> what is our tip for good this week? Well, baby, baby, our tip for good this week is Helen's razor. Never attribute mm. to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity, <laughs> which I love the, I love the phrasing of that, but I, I also want to kind of, take the pejorative connotation of the word stupidity out of this because basically what this idea is saying it's not like oh anybody that disagrees with me it's stu- is stupid it's more about framing disagreements in terms of different information rather than different a different sense of morality so think of it this way you know say there is a person who is trying to say that we should lower taxes on the rich. And they're making it as an argument because they're 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 honestly they honestly believe that if you lower taxes on the rich, the wealth will trickle down. All right. Now, trickle down economics is one of the stupidest theories ever created. Like it has been repeatedly proved wrong over and over and over again. But if I was just talking to the average Joe or even a relative of mine about that and they were to make that argument, what I should do is not assume that, oh, this person is trying to one up me. This person Mm -hmm. is trying to get ahead of me because, you know, because I'm friends with a lot of rich people and this person is clearly rich and just trying to exploit everybody. Um, 
My assumption should be, no, they believe this because they're ignorant. All right? They're not doing this out of malice. They're doing it because they're ignorant. So I want you to reframe the idea of stupidity. Yeah. Right? And think of it more as when I'm having arguments with people, assume that they're going to be a good faith actor. All right? Assume they're a good faith actor. And if you assume they're a good faith actor, then the disagreement becomes less about personal personality, less about personhood, less about, um, you know, who they are and more about what they know. Mm -hmm. The way that you really convince people is convincing is, is by convincing them that the information has changed, not them. Yeah. So. And I would say that that should apply to most activists as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there is sometimes a tendency on the left to assume that any time uh, a, uh, a activist or even a politician does something the way that does something in a way that we don't agree with, that they must be doing it out of malice. And I'll admit that sometimes I'm guilty of that as well. And I would argue mm-hmm. that politicians, to an extent, probably deserve less of a benefit of the doubt. But that doesn't mean that they don't deserve some benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And it's and not. And there's as... evidence of malice. Exactly. If there's evidence of malice, you know, like, say, um, Mitch McConnell. I mean, just just Mitch McConnell. Just name. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if, there's plenty, if there's plenty of evidence of malice, then, of course, you know, go ahead and call for malice. But the 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 neutral the neutral statement the, the neutral state of being should be to assume that a person is acting with good intentions and if they're doing the wrong thing it's because they're an idiot and them being an idiot doesn't mean they're a bad person it just means that they mm-hmm. don't know what they're doing you know i would say i would i would actually make that point about michael and me so yeah. we do try to be intellectually honest we do try to correct ourselves when we're wrong or mm-hmm. uh we, we 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 try to make sure that the facts that we present are the best they can be um are the most accurate they can be so if we ever if if we're saying things that you think are wrong just know it's because we're idiots <laughs> and you can tell us you can reach out yeah you can throw us some money on patreon and then tell us <laughs> directly where it counts in our wallet (laughs) (laughs) and that's tips for good okay so for our second segment we are diving into recent news that has come out of new york um where prosecutors there have recently unveiled the first charges in their grand jury investigation into the trump organization and have charged trump He was the president. He was. He was the president. And now he's going to be a criminal. (laughs) (laughs) Got to be. Well, not yet. (laughs) Not yet officially. Um, So they're charging the former president's company and his uh, chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, with uh, tax-related crimes. Um, So this is kind of the first charge that we've seen come out of um, a years-long investigation into uh, the Trump organization and um, and participants and Trump himself, which includes, you know, uh, 
this was the investigation that got Trump's tax records. Um, and, and so we expect that this is probably the first um, indictment in, in what is likely to be a longer list of charges for various individuals in the organization, yeah. um, which may or may not end up including Trump himself. Yeah. Before we get into the specifics of the charges, there is one criticism that I would like to address criticism of the investigation and that is the idea that it is purely politically motivated mm-hmm. um and i think that there's an important conversation to be had here about that so first off uh, a a poll from the hill actually came out saying that 51 percent of americans do actually think that this is politically motivated and 49 percent say that uh it's because the prosecutors uncovered politi- uh, criminal behavior um so my thoughts on that would be, of course, it's politically motivated, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's what I mean by that. Here's, here's my argument. So it is probably true that if Trump had never became president, that this would never have happened. You know, if, mm-hmm. if Donald Trump had never become president in the first place, there wouldn't be so many eyes on him that would allow some of, some of his shady activity to come to light. But my response to that is, okay, well, then if you're a criminal and you're doing a bunch of shady shit, <laughs> don't fucking run for president. Yeah. <laughs> like, because of course that's going to happen. It should happen. Yeah. Whoever is the most powerful person in the free world needs to be heavily vetted in every possible way. And the fact that he's already saying that he might run in 2024, well, we better make sure that he's not a fucking criminal. We better make sure that we look at every possible angle because, I mean, that's what you they shouldn't did. elect a criminal twice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's what that's what Republicans were doing with the Benghazi yeah. investigations into Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Um. Like, that's what they tried to do with uh, Hunter Biden, which mm-hmm. ended up falling flat. I mean, of course you want to vet people that, that, that a person that might become president again. Of course yeah. you want to vet the former president. Yeah. Because, so, so, so yes, politics is involved in this, of course. You know, you, you'd have to be, like, you, you'd have to have blinders on to not recognize that. Yeah. But that doesn't like that just means that he's more of an idiot. Like that just means that (laughs) if he was doing shady shit with his company, like that he's an idiot for thinking, hey, you know what I should totally do? Put myself in the national spotlight. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I want to make like two points on this on this topic. Um, So um, Donald Trump Jr. came out on a in an interview on Fox News and compared this investigation uh, to Russia's, the Russian government's um, imprisonment of, of Alexei Navalny, uh, the, the critic of, of Vladimir Putin. Um, and he said, this is the political perse- persecution of a political enemy. This is what Vladimir Putin does. Um, and I think that's probably a sentiment 
that upon hearing something like, of course this is political, that's fine, one might think, you know, one might make that comparison. Well, in, in corrupt countries, the government uh, prosecutes its political enemies, but not in the United States. Couple really important distinctions here, though, uh, that make up. this case <laughs> unlike that. Well, first of all, hypocrisy is obviously on the table because it always is on the table. Lock her up is obviously the exact same thing, but with even with even less merit, significantly less merit. Importantly, though, we have multiple branches of government. The people that are prosecuting this case do not control the courts, so. And the people that are in power currently in our government do not control the prosecutors or the courts. And so it's not like the, the Russian situation because it's not rigged. Yeah. Even if it is politically motivated, you're still taking this through the justice system just the same way that you would take any other case. Which means that in the Russian example, you might see a case you know, reach conviction and have no confidence that the person actually committed a crime. Whereas in this case, if someone is committed of a crime, of committing a crime, we can be very confident that they actually did. So that's, that's um, you know, one really important distinction, which like we should just, just should put to bed all claims that somehow this being politically motivated makes it illegitimate. Yeah. The second thing I wanted to talk about was the fact that, you know, it seems like the Trump organization and Alan Weisselberg, you know, th it seems like their strategy at this point is one, plead not guilty, which of course they're going to do. But two is to try to try this in the court of public opinion. Try to say that it's political persecution in addition to prosecution. And so it, we should dismiss it. Yeah. So, so on that point, we, we shouldn't allow them to, uh, you know, try this in the court of public opinion. It's not about public opinion. Yeah. It's about a crime and a law. And the fact of the matter is being politically motivated is not a defense under the law. Yeah. So it's not like you can say it's not, it's not, it's not a defense that says you're not guilty, nor is it an affirmative defense. So an affirmative defense is like when, you know, you're accused of murdering someone and you say, well, it's not murder. I killed them, but it was self-defense. That's an affirmative defense. Being politically motivated is, is not a an affirmative defense or a negative defense. It's no defense at all. And so the fact that they're trying, the fact that they're coming out and that's like the main emphasis means that they're trying to convince you, the listener, that you should be mad about this yeah. rather than trying to convince the court that they're not guilty. And Eric Trump made an even dumber comparison where he compared it to a banana republic. He's like, actually, <laughs> he said this is, quote, worse than a banana republic, which I think it's interesting that he seems to think that a, um, a one percenter in a country facing consequences for corruption is a banana republic. Because <laughs> <laughs> in banana republics, it's the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, and the other defense that they've been trying to make, which I feel like th this defense right here kind of gets us into the specifics of the charges themselves, are basically the amount of money that the government was cheated out of. Yeah. Like, um, like so, so, so Eric Trump said, uh, "quote 
Um, and they have an entire district attorney's office uh, and attorney general's office that's focused on $3.5 million to take down a political opponent. It's like, it's not about, uh, no, we didn't do it. It's, <laughs> it was only $3.5 million. <laughs> Come yeah, on. That's crazy. Get over yourself. That's so funny. <laughs> like, that might be a consideration in a civil suit, but this is a criminal proceeding, Mr. Yeah. Trump. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the thing. The government does not only prosecute crimes when it would be profitable to prosecute crimes. They don't look at like, oh, this murderer, like, he only killed poor people, and we're not really worried about that, so we're not going to worry about it. It's like, yeah. no, certain things are against the law, and we go after those. And so, like, trying to make it a point about government bloat or, like, budgets or something that's that's so funny and so silly um and just shows how about a touch they are yeah yeah so let's get into some of the specifics then so at this point prosecutors have alleged that um for the past 15 years or so the trump organization has been compensating weisselberg in a manner that allowed the company and weisselberg the cfo to evade taxes so it's focused on indirect compensation to Weisselberg from the Trump organization, which amounted to, you know, uh, about $1.76 million. Um, so basically the, the company, uh, avoided reporting this income to tax authorities and avoided withholding taxes from it. And Weisselberg hid the income from his tax preparer and didn't report it on his tax returns. So, they believe that, um, you know, according to internal records from the Trump organization, because in order to not overpay him, they kept detailed internal records at the organization of how much they were paying him in off the books revenue, even though they were they were not reporting that to the IRS or other taxing authorities. And so they think that it was about nine hundred thousand dollars that just the CFO owed in taxes uh, to you know the the federal government, the state government, and the government of um, New York City. Which again, um, the defense is, I mean, it's not that much money. Yeah, <laughs> that is more money than I will probably ever make in my entire life. <laughs> yeah, and 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 it is a lot of money. And the fact is that like, it's it's a significant crime to hide that amount of income from the government. Yeah. And hide that amount of you know tax obligation from the government. Now, it's it would be less common to like to go after and prosecute like small uh, benefits or income or something like that, just because it's probably too ubiquitous to go after every case. But this is actually a very substantial um, version of this kind of tax evasion. Um, and so about one point one million dollars of this compensation was paid by the Trump organization in the form of rent and related expenses for a Manhattan apartment uh, where Weisselberg lived. And it was also paid uh, as payments for, for car, uh, for like long-term leases on his car, as well as um, a car for his wife and private school tuition for his family members. And so like, we're, so we're literally talking about like they just take on expenses and then they in detail tracked how much money they were paying him in these um you know in these non-cash comp forms of compensation 
so that they could avoid paying him more than his expected annual salary. And so we've got this like really buttoned up, well-documented case where not only has, you know, is there good documentation to show that Weisselberg has underreported his income, but there's also documentation on the Trump organization side that they knew it was income, they tracked it as income, and that they hid it. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the, the issue is, um, and this is according to the uh, Associated Press, um, basically, these were included as part of Weisselberg's compensation, but they were not included on his W-2 forms, which mm-hmm. means that the company did not withhold taxes on their value. That's, that's, that's what's being alleged here. And of the charges that are currently being um, put out there, the most... Severe one would be grand larceny, which would yeah. carry up up to uh, from five to 15 years in prison. Hmm. Uh, Weisselberg is 73 years old. Yeah. So I think that that kind of brings us to, you know, what everybody's thinking and what mm-hmm. obviously this is actually about. It's not about Weisselberg. It's about Trump. It's about trying to get Weisselberg to flip on Trump. Yeah. I mean, the guy's an old man and he's facing up to 15 years in prison for just the most severe of the mm-hmm. of the um of the criminal charges they're trying to get him to flip on Trump because they know that he knows all of the shady shit that Trump has done now mm-hmm. currently with this specific investigation the only thing that they can pin Trump for is the fact that his signature is on some of the checks that went to the comp- that went to some of these compensations but it's not necessarily clear as to whether or not he knew that this compensation was uh like was not going to be reported as taxable income yeah which like okay come on that's so obvious (laughs) (laughs) like like i mean i guess i guess it's not obvious that he knew that it wasn't being reported as taxable income but it's so obvious that it should be reported as taxable income so like come on (laughs) why why is the ceo signing like directly signing checks to his cfo yeah. That's like not how payroll works. That's well, not how this stuff works. Well, and remember, this isn't like th- this in a lot of ways is clearly just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Or at least that's what prosecutors or that's what prosecutors think at this point. So, remember Michael Cohen during one of his testimonies specifically indicated that Trump had committed tax fraud on several occasions in which he would inflate his assets when it would lead to, uh, you know, when it, when it would lead to him getting more money because of the property value and deflate his assets in order to avoid certain taxes. Mm-hmm. So that's a crime. That's yeah. tax fraud. So we already have his former fixer reporting on that. And I mean, let's also not forget that Michael Cohen went to prison for a uh, a campaign finance violation for hush payments to a porn star that Trump had an affair with mm-hmm. and Trump was an unindicted co-conspirator. Yeah. Again, he committed the sa- he made, committed the crime with Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen went to prison, Trump didn't. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's another thing that seems to have just gone by the wayside. So, <laughs> the, so the thing here to keep in mind is that this is all about, this is clearly all about trying to go for Trump. Mm-hmm. This is about trying to take down the yeah. bigger target. 
Yeah, which is how you take down crime bosses. Yeah. Like, that's how you do it, is you get the littler guys with details and information and access to flip. That's what you do. So uh, it makes total sense that they would they would go about it in this way. A, a couple other reasons why we should expect more indictments and potentially uh, moving on to Trump at some point is some information from um, the actual, you know, uh, indictments themselves. So um, one of the things is that one of the charges is uh, involves conspiracy in the fourth degree. Um, and conspiracy requires um, a criminal agreement between two or more individuals. So then we know that at least one co-conspirator with Alan Weisselberg uh, has talked to prosecutors, you know, in order for them to like know about this conspiracy situation. Um, so there's reason to believe you know, from that, that like, there's more to come on this. Also, um, in the indictment also refers to an unindicted co-conspirator number one. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> wonder which, who that could be. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in this case, um, it, the, the, the CNN apparently, um, believes that this is actually, uh, the organizational, uh, controller, Jeffrey McConney, okay. um, who is, he's the controller of the company, um, he worked close with Weisselberg, um, and you know he he was likely aware of like the two sets of financial books, and he testified before the New York grand jury, jury earlier this month, which made which means that you know because he testified for them, he's actually immune from criminal prosecution for these for the things that he testified about. Um, but assuming that you know he testified about the crimes of Weisselberg. Um, and the Trump organization, like, there's probably more detail that he testified there as well in order to gain immunity himself. One of the big defenses that the Trump administration has made is that this is a unique situation. This is a unique charge, which is evidence of it being politically motivated. So they're claiming that um, the DA's office uh, and the IRS never brings criminal charges because of employee <laughs> benefits like that that's just something that never happens but uh, according to uh, James Repetti uh, who is a tax lawyer and a professor at Boston College Law School um, he, he told the Associated Press this is actually routine he said quote the IRS routinely looks for abuse of fringe benefits when auditing closely held businesses mm-hmm so not only is it not rare, it's routine. Yeah. And in fact, there was actually a um, uh, there was actually a real estate figure named uh, Leona Hemsley, uh, who is uh, uh, deceased now, uh, who was actually convicted of tax fraud in a federal case that arose from her company paying to remodel her home without her mm. reporting it as income. So this has happened before. Yeah. This has absolutely happened before. It is not uncommon. So, again, whether or not the decision to open up an inquiry into the Trump administration was motivated by the fact that he was a well-known figure in politics, I mean, that's not the right question to be asking. Yeah. It's not super relevant. What matters is, did he break the law and what's the evidence that he broke the law? Yeah. Yeah. The last thing I want to say here is that even if 
Trump ends up being convicted of some kind of felony, he can still run for president. Yep. The requirements are... Yeah, exactly. The requirements are just that you're a natural-born citizen, that you're at least 35 years old, and you've been a resident of the United States for 14 years. Nothing to do with criminal status. He couldn't vote for himself in a lot of states, I think including Florida, but, uh, but he could run for president, which means that this, you know, this criminal prosecution is not the path to keeping him from being president if he runs again in 2024. The only path to keep him from uh, getting to be president again is to prevent him from being voted in as president, which means that, you know, that's the more difficult mountain to climb and the one that we must climb. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat, asshat of, of the, the Week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asset this week? Uh, this one hurts. This one's, <laughs> this one seriously hurts me. Uh, our asshat this week is Stephen Colbert. Oh, my gosh. And, I, and we know he's a listener because this is exactly the kind of show that he likes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, he actually gets a bunch of content from here. All the late night shows do. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what did Stephen Colbert do to, to disgrace our show? Yeah. So uh, this was on a show that he was doing, and it was uh, it was his July first show. And he he took a break during his monologue for a second, and for a second he was he was pretending that he was going to talk about the Israeli Palestine mm-hmm. conflict. You know, he took a break. He was like, "Hey, I want to shift gears and be serious. I want to, you know, for too long I've been silent about the generational struggle between Israel and Palestine. Well, that ends tonight." Because tonight I can say with complete conviction. And then there is this random alert thing that happens while he's talking. It's like, you know, breaking meanwhile. And uh, it was a story about a guy that broke his penis. Yeah. So he interrupted. Like he, 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 he basically interrupted a, uh, uh, like a fake out. Yeah. About the Israel Palestine conflict with a story about a guy that broke his penis. Yeah. So here's why that pisses me off. Look, I have a very high threshold for what I think of as offensive humor. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, for the most part, I think that comedians should get more free reign than most people. Like, I think that comedians should be in their special category. Yeah. And I do think sometimes people get too offended by comedy that you know gets gets too raunchy but that's not what this was this was trivializing an extremely important issue and acknowledging the fact that he's trivializing it like yeah. making a joke about how how he, about trivializing it yeah um and i don't even know what point he was trying to make with this yeah like i'm not even sure what point because c- c- look he hadn't said anything about this. And I, and I had noticed that I had noticed that he hadn't said anything about the Israel Palestine conflict, but you know what? He, he's a comedian and you know, he, he needs to fill his shows with funny stories and silly shit. So I just always assumed, okay, well you're not saying it because it just hasn't fit into one of your segments yet Mm. or because you're focusing on domestic issues or, or whatever. Or because maybe it's not silly, funny shit. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, and if that was the case, it would just be like, okay, fine, fine. But he's he knows perfectly well that he's hasn't addressed this issue. He is purposely avoiding it. And he's making fun of that with a story about someone that, like, you know, s s someone that broke their penis. A guy that broke his penis. You know, one of the first comedians that I heard talk about, actually, not the first time I really heard about the Israel-Palestine conflict, you know you know who I, I heard that discussion from? I have a guess. I think he's, John he's Stewart. one of the greats. Yeah. 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 It was John Stewart. All right. The first time... Uh, I was really like exposed to the Israel-Palestine conflict. This was when I was in high school. It was from John Stewart. Mm -hmm. All right, and this just goes to show that Colbert has never and will never have anything on John Stewart. <laughs> and I know that that probably just kills him, but honestly, it's shit like this. It's the fact that he is frequently unwilling to take stances that might piss off the establishment that really does that. Yeah. And look, that being said, I still like Stephen Colbert. I'm still going to watch him because I think that for the most part, his content is funny. He taught he, most of the issues he talks about, I think are important. Um, and I think that overall he is a net positive in you know, the, the field of political discourse, but he really fucked this one up. And like, I would, I, I feel like nobody else, I, I don't know who else is going to call him out for this, but somebody needs to, this was bullshit. All right. Yeah. Take a stance, bro. Yeah. Or just leave it off the docket or just leave it off the docket. Like, why he literally, in his comments acknowledged how serious it was. And then like, while people are literally being killed and rights trampled and there's like 60 laws on the books in Israel that directly treat Palestinians and Arabs as second class citizens. Mm -hmm. It is an apartheid state. Yeah. And it has, and the situation has been developing and worsening and becoming more intense for, you know, 80 years at this point. And people have been born and lived and died all under, like, you know, all, all, all having to deal with this situation. And it's crazy that he would kind of make light of that. So congratulations to Stephen Colbert for being our Asshat Ass of, of the, the Week. week. Okay, so for our third segment, we are talking about the overlap of sports and politics. Um, I think this has been something that's like been developing um, for a long time and has been kicked off, you know, the conversations around this have been kicked off more recently with some of the controversies surrounding the Olympics. Um, and so we wanted to talk about some of those stories and, and also you know, the role of athletes and, uh, you know, sports organizations in um, activism and politics. So the first one that I want to at least briefly address is the case of uh, Shikari Richardson testing positive for marijuana and getting suspended. 
Um, now, it, it's not clear as to whether or not she will be uh, actually like suspended from the Olympics itself. Yeah. Like it, it seems to have been set up uh, so that she will like it'll it'll last for a month and it'll expire just in time for her to be able to go to the Olympics. But this is some bullshit. Well, and and at this point, it it won't expire before her the 100 meter, which is her main event. And she's yeah. not been picked bec- uh, for the 400 meter relay because her time trials were invalidated because she tested positive for THC. Um, and that's considered, you know, to be an abusive drug by the anti-doping administration. And so at this, it's not a performance. In <laughs> drug, though. Yeah. Like, have you ever tried, have you ever tried to run a hundred meters? Especially not, you know, impaired. I mean, if, if you, if you, if you smoked a joint, and then managed to beat everybody in a hundred meter race. Like that's on the people you were racing against. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's the like, thing. have you ever, have you ever tried to win a race while baked out of your mind? It just, it, I haven't, it's but not a I performance enhancing drug. Yeah. How bad that would be. Um, apparently this was because her mother had died and she was doing it to like cope with depression and she did it in Oregon Yeah, where it was, where legal. It was legal. And, and, yeah, and I mean, just side note, but she was told about her biological mother passing away by a reporter during an interview. Yeah. Like, she's about to compete in, you know, the trials for the Olympics. She's under a tremendous amount of pressure. And to your point, this is not a performance enhancer. There's no competitive advantage, which is the whole point. It's all about, like, this puritan morality bullshit yeah that makes it seem like oh just because you smoked marijuana somehow you're you know you're morally reprehensible and that will infect the other competitors that's bullshit yeah like and i hate the fact that she actually did apologize like i I understand why she did it i don't blame her Mm -hmm. for apologizing but the fact that she like was forced to apologize and and actually said quote i apologize if i let you down and i did you didn't let anybody down mm-hmm. all right you used a substance you're an adult who used a substance that is not harmful and you did it in a state where it was legal and it was not a performance enhancing drug who cares yeah. and that's and that's the thing you're you're absolutely right like it is it it seems super illogical and ridiculous and what what I, what has given me, what has made me, um, you know, uh, what has made me feel a little bit better about this whole situation is that this has kind of focused some light on this topic. And, you know, President Biden said, you know, everybody knows the rules going in, whether they should remain the rules is a different issue, but the rules are the rules. So basically he was saying, like, he said that basically that, you know, we should maybe question whether these rules should be in place, which is basically what we're talking about, too. And, you know, um, uh, last week also, you know, uh, Jamie Raskin and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wrote a letter, letter to the um, the World Anti-Doping Administration um, and the U.S. Uh, ADA expressing dismay over her suspension 
um, and urging the bodies to reconsider the policies uh, that led to her, you know, ban. And so, like, I guess, I guess the thought here is that, like, it is totally ridiculous and silly and crazy that she would be suspended and prevented from going and competing in the Olympic Games because of this. But ultimately, like, the role that this can play in the larger discourse is to further shine light on how silly and ridiculous and impactful laws around, you know, marijuana use are. You know, with, like, over 40,000 Americans incarcerated for marijuana-related crimes at the same time as marijuana is decriminalized or legalized in 45 states. It just got legalized in our state seven days ago. Yeah. And so, like, so she's been kind of, you know, unintentionally been made this kind of a martyr for this topic. Um, But, like, to your point, it is just ridiculous that someone would be prevented from participating in the Olympic games because of this. And you're right that it is, it is so much of a result of like this puritanical and widely misplaced war on drugs, which somehow swept up marijuana. Yeah. Another story, which I think is going to be a good launching off point for the, uh, the larger conversation that I want us to have is the case of a hammer thrower, Gwen Berry. So um, she uh, was at the uh, U.S. Olympic track and fields, um, and she uh, had placed third in uh, the the trial games in Oregon, uh, which meant that she had just earned a trip to uh, Tokyo, the Tokyo Olympics, which happened in a month. And so she was standing on the podiums, and the national anthem played... And she turned away from the flag. Mm -hmm. Now, later she said the reason why she did that was to protest against police brutality against black people. Yeah. Um, Although she even said that she was kind of blindsided by that moment. Apparently, normally what they do is they play the uh, the Star Spangled Banner before the uh, um, before the athletes go out. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they're not spotlighted. Uh, their, their, their reactions to the national anthem aren't spotlighted. Um, and she, she made the argument where she was like, look, uh, the national anthem does not speak for me. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't, uh, it doesn't represent me or it doesn't, uh, um, it's not about me. And let's be fair to her. The national anthem was written in uh, 1814, back when someone that looked like her would have been a slave. Meaning that the last line, land of the free, home of the brave, was not talking about people like her. Yeah. So, I mean, so let's be fair. You know, I, 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 that isn't to say that a person or even a person of color can't hear the national anthem and view it as, you know, as a symbol of freedom or as, as, as a symbol of fighting for greater freedom for more people. But, I mean, I, I, I can totally understand somebody hearing the National Anthem thinking about that history and feeling as if it doesn't represent them. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and, and the thing is, like, this was an unintentional kind of, like, 
protest that has gotten a bunch of backlash, especially from the right. Um, but she has intentionally protested in the past. So on the podium for her gold medal um, at the 2019 Pan American Games in Peru, um, she she put she threw up her fist during the national anthem. And at the time, um, because of because of rules. Um, you know, governing protest of athletes that actually landed her with a 12 month suspension and the loss of her sponsorship. Um, so, you know, this is not someone that is taking this lightly, even if it was kind of accidental that she ended up, you know, being up there during the national anthem. Um, but it's, it's again, there's been some progress here. So on this show, we, we advocate for the ability, the, you know, the right of, um, athletes to to protest and to stand up and to use their platform and voice, um, and you know there has been at least some movement on this topic in the Olympics to enable athletes to do that. So for a long time, um, Rule Fifty of the Olympic Charter um, has outlawed any demonstration uh, or uh, of political, religious, or uh, racial quote propaganda. Um, at the Olympic Games. Um, but um, on Friday, in response to kind of an outpouring of activism, um, the International Olymp- Olympic Committee released new guidelines which allow Olympians um, the opportunity to express their views on the field um, before the start of a competition um, by either displaying clothing or making symbolic gestures um, before events start. So they're they're still not allowed to do it on like you know, um, the podium or the field, um, or in the Olympic village or during the closing ceremonies, but they have, they're now no longer punished for like, you know, the symbolism before the games start, you know, before their events start. And in the Olympics in December, the U S Olympic and Paralympic committee, um, actually put in place even looser restrictions on, on, uh, expression in competition or during the podium. So again, reversing kind of a long-standing policy against athlete activism, which are tiny, tiny steps in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and as you can probably imagine, uh, this action was condemned by the right. Yeah. Although interestingly enough, um, you know, uh, Senator Tom Cotton actually came to her defense. Um, you know, he actually said, quote, uh, you know, in, in, you know, in discussing people that were outraged by this, he said, quote, as soon as they are presented with an opinion in which they disagree, they go into meltdown, they demand censorship. Oh, wait, fuck. Sorry, I made a mistake. Um, see, that was him defending his own free speech uh, <laughs> back in uh, back in June mm. of 2020 when he wrote an op ed saying that the U.S. military should be sent in to quell protests. My bad. Oh, um, sorry, let me let me pull up what he actually said. I'm sure that because he's a morally consistent, upstanding guy, he was, you know, he definitely defended her right of free speech. Oh, fuck. No, he said, quote, if Gwen Berry is so embarrassed by America, there's no reason she needs to compete for our country at the Olympics. <sighs> so she should be fired for expressing free speech. <laughs> what uh, a fucking cuck. That's why he's on. That's why he's on asset so often. Um <laughs> Yeah, so so the larger you know issue at play here is athletes being able to be people in addition to athletes yeah. 
and like commercial commodities <laughs> yeah. and like having the right to express themselves and having the opportunity to use the platform that they have worked very hard to get by being, you know, the top performers in their field to advocate for issues that they are passionate about for issues that may and, and likely did affect them. You know, you think of like yeah. Colin Kaepernick is like the, the classic example, like the, like one of the first that, you know, took a knee during the national anthem to protest police, uh, killing of black Americans and was ruthlessly uh, attacked for it um, by, you know, not only the right, but also like, you know, people on the left as well. Like so many people just thought it was not the place to, to have that, that type of speech. And my question is why not? Yeah. Well, the idea that they keep trying to present is that um, sports is supposed to be a distraction. It's supposed to be a place, it's supposed to be entertainment, a place where you can get away from politics. So basically, uh, sports is supposed to be a safe space. <laughs> um, so here's the problem with that. Number one, first off, you know, it's fucking hypocritical. Yeah. Number two, sports has always been political mm -hmm. i mean there was a time in which a black person even being on a sports team yeah was a political statement yeah like we just recently had the first nfl player come out as gay mm -hmm. that just fucking happened yeah all right and currently in our country like 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 here's here's the other thing a black athlete they're not only black when they're competing. Yeah. They're black when they go to sleep. They're black when they get up and they're black when they get stopped by a cop. Mm -hmm. All right. We, we, we've cited this statistic before, but approximately a, a quarter of all, all of all people who are killed by police are black who make up approximately 13% of the population. That is disproportionate. That is a disproportionate number of black people that are killed by police versus white people. All right. There is systemic racism that is measurable. And, 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 and when you're basically saying that this experience of your personhood cannot be expressed in this, uh, in, in this venue, like you are basically trying to say that, um, that they're not allowed to be a person. Mm -hmm. Like they're not allowed to have a totality of experiences. Yeah. And that is just bullshit. Now, here's the thing. If, if saying that black people shouldn't be shot by police was not political, like, yeah, it was not like controversial. That, no one would care. If, if, if it was not controversial in the first place, yeah, then we wouldn't be having this problem. Yeah. But the problem is, you are creating controversy over black people just saying, hey, stop shooting us. Yeah. So who's making it political? All right. So everything's political when it really comes down to it. Mm -hmm. All right. When a person's existence 
very existence in some venues can be a political statement. You have no like you have no cause to complain when they bring that existence with them to the sports field. And also, where was that crusade against cancel culture? Yeah. All right. <laughs> you are the people that that tried to that argued for congressional committees on Dr. fucking Seuss. You were so offended by Dr. Seuss being canceled. Like when 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 doc when this company that publishes Dr. Seuss was like, "Hey, there are there's a few books that we're going to stop publishing because they have some offensive stuff in it." You cried cancel culture. You cried cancel culture, you cried suppression of free speech. But the moment a black athlete tries to say, "Oh, hey, I don't like it that black people are shot at a disproportionate r rate than white people. Your immediate reaction, your gut reaction, without even thinking, is cancel them, fire them. You are so full of shit that you can't even see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, so, so you know, you might, you might be of the opinion that, sure, like, an athlete on a normal game... Uh, can can protest and all and, and all that good stuff like that makes total sense, um, but you know you might also be of the opinion that, well, the Olympics is an international competition, <laughs> and the point is to go and represent um, your country, similar to the World Cup. Like you're there as a representative of your nation, and so it is incumbent upon you to you know be patriotic. Um, First of all, probably that's not true. You know, like, <laughs> first of all, like, um, you know, as an athlete, you may be representing your nation, but there's no reason why you have to be like, you know, Yankee Doodle or something like that. But also the rest but, of the world already knows that we're super racist. <laughs> that is not news. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's definitely not news. But also, as we've said on this show many times, patriotism is not zealous support for anything that your country does. That is just not what patriotism is. And the fact that, you know, Tom Cotton and and many Republicans like him, their immediate reaction was, oh, speaking out against, like, aspects of our nation? Well, then you hate our nation, and then so our nation should hate you. And, like, that is the opposite of patriotism. That's chauvinism. That's nationalism. No, patriotism is love of your country and that requires constant pursuit of the ideals of your nation which guess what includes not only free speech but also equality before the law so i could not think of a more patriotic act than uh, using your platform as a representative of the united states to push for the betterment of the United States. All right, and with that, we will end, as we usually do, on our highlights. So, Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, my highlight this week is uh, I, I'm i a year older. Yeah. Um, I, 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 had a, I had a birthday and had some friends over, and, uh, you know, we all talked. You know, we, we had a lot of fun, and... You know, it reminded me how nice it is to be vaccinated. So, uh, you know, 
Y'all should do that too if you're not already vaccinated. I totally agree. <laughs> so, Michael, what was your highlight? Uh, my highlight, I think, was seeing Matt Gates. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, he's. My- uh, he sends me a random ass picture, <laughs> like while he's in Florida, of this guy, and he's like, uh, "Nathan, I think I just saw Matt Gates," <laughs> and I'm like, "No way!" And then I zoom it in, I'm like, "Holy shit! I think that's Matt Gates." Yeah, yeah. So my highlight is that I got to go to Florida and spend a couple of days, like on the sun in the beach, and Brie and I had a really nice, relaxing time, just the two of us, which was a real, real treat. Um, but really, the highlight is that I was in Naples, Florida, in a Publix, and Matt Gates and his wife are at the checkout. <laughs> so that was uh, that was a treat. And so with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.